Hello everyone, welcome to Knox Bedtime Stories. I'm your friend Joey, here with another episode to help you relax, feel safe, and fall asleep. It's 11pm here. I hope you're all feeling well tonight. If not, hopefully I can make you feel better and help you get some much-deserved sleep. If you're new to the podcast, welcome to the Knox family. I'll be here for you every Monday night. If you find the podcast helps you, please subscribe and give me a kind review on whatever platform you're listening on. In order to thank those of you who have helped the podcast grow by reviewing and subscribing to the podcast, I'm going to put out a second episode this week on Wednesday. It's part three of Alice in Wonderland, and we're at the part with the Cheshire Cat and the Mad Tea Party. I put nearly 60 hours of work this week into the three episodes I worked on, so I really hope you enjoy them. Tonight's story is a rather amusing sci-fi episode about what people imagined the late 90s would look like from the 1950s. If you guessed they were hilariously wrong, you would be correct. But I don't want to give away any more of the story than that, You'll have to listen for yourself. You may remember from last week that I did a positive news story about two children who were saved from a moose by World of Warcraft. So, before we get to the story, I'm going to read a good news story you won't hear in the awful news cycle of 2020. A zoo in Pennsylvania has welcomed two new adorable additions to its animal family. A pair of red pandas, a boy and a girl, were born on July 8th and are now five weeks old, a spokesperson with Erie Zoo announced. The babies, who have yet to be named, were born to the zoo's adult red pandas, Pumori and Delilah. This is their first litter together. Pumori is extremely valuable genetically for red pandas, who are critically endangered. So this is a really, really exciting development for the world of species survival and pandas, the spokesperson said. Dr. P.J. Palumbo, the attending veterinarian at the Erie Zoo, has been taking care of the pandas since they were born and will continue to do so until they are about four months old. The babies must be fed every four hours and are being hand-raised by Palumbo because they were struggling to naturally gain weight. They are doing extremely well, the spokesperson said in the video, while giving viewers a glimpse of the babies. They did just open their eyes within the last week. The babies, who are currently brown, will slowly develop a red color over time. I hope you enjoyed that bit of good news before bed. Now, let's get to our story set to relaxing music and this beautiful fireplace. If you're not already laying down, please do so in whatever position is comfortable. And let's begin. The Thursday morning executive meeting of the General Products Corporation was adjourned, as usual with the consumer's pledge. The same pledge recited each morning by children in schools across the nation J.L. Spender, Assistant Vice President of Cotter Pin Production for Plant 5, 
was proud to put in these extra Thursday mornings. Let the common herd work their three-day, 21-hour week. He was part of the management team, working behind the scenes, constantly raising the standard of living of the American consumer. A silent elevator whisked JL to the roof of the administration building, where the heliport attendant rolled out his new helicopter, a June 1998 Buick Skymaster. It was a sculpture in chrome and plexiglass, a suitable vehicle for the assistant vice president, as prescribed by Consumer's Guide. A loyal consumer, he bought the new model every six months. Once in the air and on course, JL set the Ultramatic Autopilot, a new feature on the 98 model, and pushed the chrome seat control lever to semi-reclining. Scarcely a cloud marred the pristine blue and below nestled the neat, colorful homes of happy American consumers. But his problem was not to be soothed by sinking back to enjoy the crisp spring air. Life, JL felt, would be all sweetness and light were it not for the unaccountable affection his pretty daughter Glory bore for an ascetic-looking young man of doubtful integrity as a consumer. There had been a parade of acceptable young men through his door, none of whom had excited more in him than apathy. But this one, he wore spectacles with heavy black frames when almost everyone used disposable contact lenses. His suits were at least a month behind the current style, and with all those young men to choose from, Glory picked him to ask to dinner that evening. Glory had been taught to respect the might of the dollar and the disaster that comes of not spending it. She was a credit to her family, a sound patriotic consumer. She could spend money faster, more sensibly than any of her frivolous friends. One fortunate young man would find her an excellent wife. No dollar hoarder would fill her mind with subversive notions if he could prevent it. Much as JL disliked having that particular young man to dinner, it did afford the opportunity to spend some of the extra money that always collected if he didn't watch very carefully. Being forced to pay a savings tax wouldn't do his career or social position any good, and he certainly wouldn't think of putting it into a secret bank account. The Hudson River was beneath him. He would soon be home. The thought reminded him that though the family had already passed the five-year mark in this house, he had still not made an appointment with the architect. Just before landing, JL took the controls. The autopilot was supposed to land itself, but somehow he felt better doing it himself. A control on the dash opened the garage, another retracted the overhead rotors. He drove in, closed the garage door, and got out. He paused in the hall only long enough to throw his hat and top coat into the waste receptacle. From the kitchen, he heard the familiar crackling of packages being unwrapped. Home at last, he sighed, pecking Marge's wife on the cheek. What did you buy today, honey? 
It was a treat to watch the pleasure with which Marge unwrapped packages. JL bought most things out of a sense of duty, but Marge and Glory really enjoyed spending money. God bless them. Oh, lots of things, Marge answered. She held a cut crystal goblet to the light, watching it sparkle. A new set of china, this exquisite stemware, and the loveliest linen cloth, and... Oh, and they're sending a genuine oak table for the dining room. The shop I bought it in has the cleverest service. The man who delivers the table cuts up the old one so it can be used in the fireplace. Isn't that practical? That is clever, JL said. It's a pity to waste it all on that good-for-nothing, whatever his name is. Stringer. What? That's his name, Ernest Stringer. Why is he a good-for-nothing? He does dress oddly, I admit, but Glory seems to like him. That's exactly why I'm worried. If she asked him for dinner, there's no telling what's going on person like that is a bad influence, JL said, punctuating by jabbing at air with his index finger. Now really, dear, you hardly know him. I know him well enough. You are the one who claims to be such a good judge of character. Look at those glasses he wears. Why doesn't he wear disposable contact lenses like everyone else? It's positively unsanitary. And did you see that suit? I'll say he dresses oddly. That thing hasn't been in style for a month. I bet he doesn't spend half his salary. Oh, I don't know, Marge said abstractedly. She was admiring the floral pattern on her new china. But do be nice to him. Don't say anything to embarrass Glory. Oh, I'll be nice all right. I guess I know how to act. You and your daughter have trained me. And there are worse things than being embarrassed. He would have gone on, but at that moment, Glory sauntered into the room. Hi, Dad. Back from the grind, I see. Her hair was the color of lemon, and in her blue eyes was reflected a youthful zest for life. Do you like the new dress? It comes in 17 colors. I bought them all, and hats and shoes and gloves and bags to match. She said, walking as she had seen professional models walk, with arms akimbo and swinging hips. Very pretty, he said, but shouldn't there be a little more to it? Style is style, but leave something to the imagination. They can't be using up much fabric with a number like that. See, Mom, didn't I tell you exactly what he'd say? Daddy is so mid-century. Aren't you, darling? Glory, at the risk of seeming, uh, mid-century, I think you owe your mother and myself some information about this person you've asked to dinner. What kind of information? You've met him, she said. Her eyes narrowed slightly. Yes, I've met him. What is his background? What does he work at? What kind of a consumer is he? Dad, you're not being fair. Not fair, why not? Are you ashamed of him? No, I'm not ashamed of him. Ernie is a dear sweet boy. He lost both of his parents when he was very young. Bringing himself up has made him different from most people, I guess. But he has done very well, and all by himself too. 
He's an OE, you know. This only added heat to JL's burning suspicion. I don't want to sound narrow-minded, Glory, but I've met a good many opinion engineers in business, and darned few of them are fit company for a young girl. They picture themselves as independent thinkers. They don't spend their money as they should. Glory's lips whitened as she pressed them together. JL saw the gathering storm in her eyes. That's not fair, she said. Ernie is perfectly alright. He just needs looking after. Mother, help me. Marge smiled calmly and said, Your father is just acting like a father, that's all. He is trying to protect you. Well, I'm 20 years old almost, and it's practically the 21st century, but it looks like the Middle Ages around here. I'm sorry I asked him to come. I'll never ask anyone again. She threw her head back and pressed the back of her hand to her forehead. Now, don't start getting dramatic. I only want what's best for you, JL said. But it was only a bluff. He knew when he was licked. All right, all right, he said, trying to prevent her tears from brimming over. I promise to be good tonight. It was time for him to retreat as gracefully as possible to his study and the latest issue of Consumer's Guide, which he did. At a quarter of seven, JL tottered into his living room. He was fully dressed except for a bright red sash hanging slack, like a sail in the doldrums, just brushing the tops of his patent leather shoes. Dressing was a nerve-jarring, thirst-making business. He was in full sympathy with the need for changing men's style so frequently, but those overpaid designers could surely dream up easier outfits to get into. He separated a decanter of bourbon from its fellows on the mirror back shelves and from it poured a lavish helping. Using the tip of his index finger, he twirled the ice cubes and, with a sigh, lifted the golden fluid to his lips. Over the rim of the glass, he saw Glory come floating into view. She was dressed, mostly below the waist, in yards of light gauzy fabric that seemed to have a life of its own. She stopped at the door while her eyes slowly swept the room. JL was reminded of a spider making sure the web would be cozy. Her glance came to rest on the portly figure of her father. She exhaled a sigh of controlled exasperation. Daddy, your sash is hanging. It looks like a flag at half-mast. I am perfectly aware that my sash is hanging. He wasn't sure he approved of the tone of her voice. Well, tuck it up then. Ernie will be here any minute. It refuses to stay up. How do you know? Maybe it is supposed to hang. Those designers should be forced to dress in these things before they loose them on the unsuspecting public. She glided towards him. With a few deft touches, the sash was neatly in place. Dad, promise you'll be nice to him. JL smiled, much as he protested. He liked being fussed over. Of course, I'll be nice. When am I not nice? I just said those things about him because... Well, I want you to be wary. 
Don't worry about Ernie, he's a deer. And please, no economics lectures. That business about thrift being a menace to prosperity may have been a new idea when you were young, but now every kid in school has taught it, so spare us. It makes you sound like an old fuddy-duddy. Fuddy-duddy? JL was about to make a stunning rejoinder when he heard the whirring of helicopter rotors overhead. There he is, Glory said excitedly. Let him in. Where are you running, he asked, surprised. She was as fully dressed as she was likely to be. You know, I can't be here when he comes in, she said. Can't be here? Where else should you be? JL asked. The situation was getting out of hand. Strategy, my dear parent. I can't just be sitting here waiting when he walks in. He is supposed to be waiting for me, with bated breath. It makes my entrance more effective. Ta-ta for now, she was gone. The prospect of dining at the same table with the young man was repellent enough. Now, he would have to provide entertaining conversation until Glory chose to appear. The door chime sounded. JL drained his glass, stiffened his spine, and strode to the door, pulling it open with a jerk, like a doctor removing adhesive tape. Any hope JL might have had was dashed when the door opened to reveal Ernest Stringer, his piercing brown eyes, a tight-lipped smile, and the traditional gift of candy under his arm. Good evening, Mr. Spender, he said. You are, I believe, expecting me. He was so thin that the current tight-fitting style made him look very like a figure constructed with pipe cleaners. JL did his best to appear gracious. Come in, come in, he said, taking his hat and coat. Glory will be in soon. The suit was up to date, but JL spotted other telling details. His heels were slightly lighter in color than the rest of the shoes, indicating they had been re-heeled. It was also evident to a trained eye that the collar and cuffs of his shirt had been resized, proof that the shirt had been laundered, perhaps even more than once. What can I get you to drink? JL asked, leading the way into the living room. Nothing, thank you. I seldom take alcohol, the young man said. Is that right, a young fellow like you? It certainly is fortunate that the rest of your generation doesn't share your prejudice. Alcoholic beverages account for more than 5% of total consumer purchases. 5%? As much as that? Well, in that case, I should have something. Ah, a glass of sherry, I think, he said, smiling with lips unparted. Sherry? Sure you don't want something more? More substantial? Sherry will do nicely, thank you. A sherry drinker is capable of anything, JL thought. He poured the wine into a high-stemmed glass and mixed another bourbon for himself, this time going a little easier on the ice. The young man held the stem between spidery fingers, turning it slowly, delicately, sniffing the bouquet. JL wished Glory or Marge would rescue him, 
He couldn't think of anything to say. What could one say to a male sherry drinker? What do you think of the international situation? JL asked, just to break the uncomfortable silence. What international situation? I mean, do you think we are headed for war? JL was sorry he had asked a harmless question. The young man laughed derisively. What an idea. Of course there won't be a war, he said. Why do you say that? He wanted to hear how far Stringer would go. It's quite evident, isn't it? War has been threatening for more than 50 years. It will probably continue to threaten for 50 more. It gives our government, and that of our enemies, the excuse to build enough munitions to take up the slack in the economy between production and the ability to consume what we produce. That's ridiculous. I've never heard such nonsense. The young idiot, he thought. Anyone with sense knew that to be true, but no one made a fuss about it for fear of upsetting a system that worked so well. It was an accepted fact of life, certainly preferable to actual war, and never mentioned in polite society. Stringer continued, speaking slowly as if explaining to a very small child. He clasped his long fingers over his left knee, hugging it almost to his chest, and rocked himself slightly. Don't you see? If there was a real war, millions of consumers would be taken out of the market for the duration, and many, permanently. But this way, governments can spend as much as they need to on war goods to balance the economy without disturbing the consumers at all. The politicians love it too. It supplies them with political issues, not easily come by these days, Stringer concluded. He seemed pleased with himself. JL's glass was again empty. He rose to fill it saying, that is a very interesting theory. Have you told it to many people? Stringer did not answer. JL turned to see what had caused this sudden reticence. The young man sat with a wide-eyed stare and loosely hanging jaw, obviously incapable of speech. Glory had made her strategic entrance. Ah, there you are, dear, JL said. Mr. Stringer here has just been explaining international politics to me. Doesn't he have a fine mind, Daddy? She said, catching the young man's hand and favoring him with a smile that set his Adam's apple to dancing. Fine. J.L. thought narrow would be more accurate. He was about to make an audible comment along those lines when Marge called them into dinner. All through the meal, Marge fawned upon the young man, indulging the predatory instinct of a mother with a marriageable daughter. With the clam bisque, she told of Glory's childhood, prettiest child in the neighborhood. With the pressed duckling, she told of an army of suitors, each more desirable than the last, that Glory had discarded like weak old overcoats. And with the tropical fruit supreme, she praised the condition of matrimony with such fervor 
that JL could feel the warmth of a blush on his cheek. When the young people left for the evening, Marge sighed and said, Don't they make a nice couple? Have you lost your mind, JL replied, with almost saintly restraint. Is something the matter, dear? JL threw up his hands in despair. Is something the matter, she asks. Why did you butter him up like that? Did you see his face? He looked like a dog being scratched behind the ear. If he proposed it to Glory tonight, it's your fault. Well, I think he'd make a fine son-in-law. That non-consumer? I'd sooner drop him from the helicopter, he said. He noticed she was smiling. Don't laugh, Marge. This is serious. I'm going to have a good long talk with Glory when she gets home. I'll put a stop to this. Be careful what you say, dear, she said. Don't worry. I guess I know how to talk to my own daughter. I'm as modern as the next parent, you know that. Don't stay up too late, dear, Marge interrupted, squelching a yawn. She kissed his cheek and left the room. JL poured another drink and settled in a comfortable chair to wait and to plan. Perhaps he should be imperious. On the screen of his imagination, he saw himself. He was taller. His arms were folded high on his chest. His legs were spread wide like two sturdy trees. He had grown a full handlebar mustache. Glory, he could hear himself say, I forbid you ever to see that man again. Unfortunately, the screen showed the probable result. She slammed before him, touching her forehead to the carpet. I hear and obey, O Magnificent One. Sarcasm was more than he could bear. If only he had some proof. If only Marge hadn't been so approving. The slam of the front door dragged him from a nightmare in which Glory, having married Ernest Stringer, was drowning in a room full of coin and currency. The level of money had just reached her frightened eyes. In the dim light of the hall, he saw her leaning against the door she had slammed. Her shoulders were hunched with sobbing. Glory, what's the matter? She looked up, saw her father, and ran to her room. JL heaved out of the chair and followed slowly. Her door was open a crack. He hesitated, then knocked lightly. No answer. He pushed the door wide enough to see in. She was perched on the edge of the bed, elbows on her knees, crying silently in the darkened room. Mind if I come in? Still no answer. He stepped in and sat gingerly on the bed beside her. Several minutes passed. Want to tell me, he said gently. She shook her head violently without looking up. Suddenly, she turned and pressed her face to his chest. The sobbing subsided a little, and her words came haltingly. It was awful. He's a subversive, a criminal, and I didn't even guess. She caught her breath. We flew over to Staten Island. He parked near the water. Then he said, I want you to marry me, just like that. I liked him a lot, but I didn't know what to say. Then he said, oh daddy, it was horrible. Her sobs increased again, and she fumbled for her pocket handkerchief 
He said, look at this. And Daddy, it was one of those secret bank books. He has $100,000. And he's only 25. And he's proud of it. He's worse than the old-time gangsters. Worse than, oh, Daddy, he's a non-consumer. The last word trailed off in a wail, and she was sobbing again. JL tightened his grip on her shoulders. Be thankful, baby, he murmured. Be thankful you found the dirty so-and-so out in time. Thank you all for listening. If you found the podcast helpful, please subscribe and leave me a kind review on whatever platform you listen on. It helps others find the podcast. You can visit me and join my social media at KnoxBedtimeStories.com. I'll see you all again Monday. I wish you all a wonderful night's sleep and a happy, peaceful life. Good night.